is the third reading in this book that you should find on seats beside you, and it's page nine. Genesis chapter two, four to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Thanks be to the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to have you with us this evening. And um, yeah, if we haven't met before, my name's Stuart, and I'm the vicar here. And we're going through this series through, through Genesis. And that's why we've got those booklets. Um, I'm going to be looking at chapter two. Will you pray with me, though, before we dive in together? Lord, we do thank you so much for these chapters in Genesis and for the foundational truths they reveal about you and your goodness. As we come to look at our passage today, would you, would you speak to us? Would you help me as I speak? Would you be with each one of us as, our, as we listen? And we ask that you'd have something to say to each and every one of us. Amen. Wonderful. Well, I don't know how many um, kind of history buffs we have here at HT. Um, has anyone discovered the, uh, the, the, the sort of the news series, the podcast series, The Rest is History, with uh, Dom, uh, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook? Anyone been listening to that? There were quite a few this morning. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few. It's fascinating. It's very engaging. I find them uh, quite interesting. I have to admit, though, I don't have too much time to listen to podcasts these days, but I did manage to catch um, one of their podcasts about the early life of Churchill. I was on a drive and I listened to this and most of us know a little bit 
more about the later life of Churchill, particularly uh, as prime minister. But this was all about his young life. And actually, it turns out to be really rather tragic. Um, uh, Churchill turns out to have, the, to have had the, the most monstrous parents, um, even by 19th century standards. And uh, uh, so this podcast was saying, apparently Churchill absolutely adored his parents. He, he, he worshipped the ground on which they walked. But they were not at all interested in him. So his mother was a, uh, by all accounts, a, a, a selfish socialite. She lived to go to parties uh, and go on trips. And um, she, was, she was completely distant from, from young Churchill and made no, no attempt to hide the fact that she wasn't interested in him. So the, the epitome of this was, you can imagine, a young Churchill, he's about 14, 15, he's at boarding school, and he gets a letter from his mum to say that he can't come home for Christmas because she wants to go on a trip. And he writes to her this. He says, my darling mummy, never would I have believed that you would be so unkind. Never have I been so miserable. I can't tell you how wretched you've made me feel. Oh, my mummy, I expect you are too busy with your parties and arrangements for Christmas. I comfort myself with this. I am more unhappy than I could possibly say, your loving son, Winnie. And she never replied. She never replied to his letter. So that was his mom, but then his dad was different. His dad wasn't so much distant as just impossible to please. His dad just never in his life gave a positive word towards his son. So he was more interested, but no words of affirmation. He was a taskmaster that could never be pleased. So Churchill actually turns out to have been pretty bright. Um, I mean, he did achieve one or two things in his life. Um, and he did okay all the way through school. But then he, 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 to, to, he wanted to go into the army, and he applied to go to Sandhurst. And he did pretty well, but he just missed the infantry. But he still wrote to his dad to tell him that he'd got into the cavalry. And um, uh, his dad replied a long letter, part of which is this. He says, Make this position indelibly impressed upon your mind that if your conduct and action is similar to what it has been in the other establishments, then my responsibility for you is over. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, and profitless life you have had during your school days, you will be a social wastrel, one of hundreds of public school failures, and degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. And if that is so, you will have to bear all blame for such misfortunes yourself. Your affectionate father, <laughs> Randolph Spencer Churchill. <laughs> it sort of gets a bit funny at the end there. But that's, that's tragic, isn't it? That is so tragic. And I was listening to this um, uh, last week, and it's just so sad that he had these, one parent who was just so distant and the other one uh, who was so impossible to please. What's the connection with the sermon tonight? I think so often, it's tragic, but so often that left to our own devices, humanities seem to fill um, their picture of God so often with one of these two pictures of what God is like. 
If you go down back over the ages, whether it's the, the, the Greeks philosophizing about what God might be, or the ancients, it's again and again, it, we seem to fill what we think about God with our, with our fears. And again and again, we, we see these two pictures of what we worry God is like. That God is either totally distant, okay, fine, if he exists, if he made the world, fine, but he doesn't want anything to do with me. He's completely disinterested. Or that he just cannot be pleased. Maybe he's good, but, but I, he, he always wants something more. He wants me to change. He wants me to be different. Well, um, as we heard earlier, we, you've joined us in our third week of our journey through Genesis 1 to, to 11, the very beginning of the very book, first book of the Bible. And Genesis was written into an ancient world which had all kinds of stories of what the gods were like. The ancient creation epics of the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and the Hittites. And it turns out that these stories, <laughs> these stories so often came back to one of these two pictures of God. The most common picture of what the gods thought of human beings was this, this picture of being disinterested. Many of the ancient epics describe how uh, the gods made uh, mountains to escape on so they could get away from human beings and didn't have to listen to them. Well, the other major story in currency at that time was that human beings had just been made for hard labor. They'd just been made to feed the gods or to do the work they didn't want to do. And the gods were just taskmasters. They didn't really want to know people. And into all of this, God speaks his story. And it's as relevant back then as it is today. Because what is wonderful to discover as God speaks about his purposes uh, and his, in creation and his relationship to his people is that the truth about who God is is so much better than what we so often fear him to be. It turns out the God of the universe is a good, good God. So last week, we, uh, two weeks, we've been looking at chapter one, and we saw that a good God made a good world. And at the center of that, he put human beings to be his royal regents in the world. And today we are looking at chapter two. And as we come to chapter two, um, uh, the, the story kind of slows down it almost rewinds a little bit from, from, from chapter one, and it, it, it slows down a bit and tells the creation of um, Adam and then Eve kind of a bit slower and with a bit more detail and a slightly different angle. So what, what, what does it have to say to us about God and his relationship to people? So the first thing we discover as we look at chapter two is um, that human beings, Adam literally means man or mankind, is made of dust, so nothing special. And yet, at the same time, uh, we see that he's made face-to-face with God as God breathes life into his nostrils, maybe just a glimpse of the intimacy that we were made for. But it's only once Adam is made that things get really interesting because God doesn't just make Adam and then just leave him, all right, get on with it, you know, enjoy life. What we see is that instead God goes to great lengths to plant and make a garden and bring Adam to come and live in it. So the really key question for understanding this whole passage is, what's going on with the garden? (laughs) 
why, why such amount of time devoted in this, these early chapters to describing a garden? What is this about? What does it stand for and what does it mean? Even uh, just at face value as we look at this garden, even if we just took it kind of quite literally, it, it's a picture obviously of God's kindness and his provision, um, which would have been in stark contrast to what people would have thought of the gods. But actually, the really key uh, thing to, to understand, the, the key to this whole picture of the Garden of Eden, uh, is actually in making one very key connection. It's in between connecting the Garden of Eden here with the temple and tabernacle of the rest of the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden is directly related to the temple and tabernacle of the rest of the Old Testament. Now, if you have not made this connection before, maybe you've read this passage many, many times before and you've never kind of spotted this, then I can understand it might feel a little bit out of the blue for me to say that, possibly even a little bit implausible. And so I'm going to slow down here and, uh, well, I'm actually going to speed up in a bit, but we're going to pause here and I'm going to try and help us make a, a few of these connections between the tabernacle and Eden, just to illustrate that. So if you've got your books with you and you want to write notes, now's the moment. But don't worry if you miss a few things, because the key thing is the big picture. But let's try and make some of these connections. So first of all, a garden, a well-watered garden. Now for us Brits, where everything is a well-watered garden, we, we, we don't bat an eyelid, okay? But in the Middle East uh, at that time, you only had gardens, well-wood gardens, in one of two places, in palaces or in temples. So as soon as, he, as this mentions a garden, they're thinking already, hmm, maybe this is to do with a temple. And then to add that, um, I don't know if you've ever read the description of the tabernacle or the temple. You can go and read it in Kings, the building of the temple. Can you remember how the temple is decorated? I don't know, I remember when I was younger reading this and being so bizarre about the intricate descriptions of the pomegranates and various vines that were engraved on the inside of the tabernacle. Well, it turns out the tabernacle was decorated like a garden. Tabernacles decorated like a garden and the garden reflects the tabernacle. It's also decorated with gold and precious stones. That's probably why um, there's a specific and rather standout reference about gold and precious stones here in the garden. The next thing we see that in the middle of this garden, there is a giant river flowing out from it into the rest of the world. Why so much time spent on this river? Well, in the ancient world, this was a common picture of the presence of God or the God flowing out from from the temple into the rest of the world, bringing life. And uh, some of us might remember that that's also an image that comes a few times in the scriptures. So you might remember the famous passage, Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel sees a vision of the river of God flowing out from the temple and bringing life in the world. Another connection can be found in the next chapter, actually, in verse 24. Here we see that this, this garden has an east-facing entrance, just like, we're told, the tabernacle has. And, furthermore, we find, especially after the fall, 
that the entrance to the, to the, to the garden is guarded by cherubim, great flaming angels. And what guards the holy of holies in the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Two giant carved cherubim. And um, I, I, uh, then there are these two trees. Fascinating. We have the tree of life. Now, this, there are lots of mentions of the tree of life in the ancient world and in the scriptures. But the key connection to make here is probably between the tree of life, as pictured in the garden here, and the menorah lamp in the Holy of Holies, just in front of it, actually. A giant seven-fold lamp um, that, if you go and read, uh, it represented the presence of God, the life-giving blessing of God shining on the people of God. And it's decorated how? You want to take a guess? Like a tree with almond blossom and, and other decorations on it. And then we come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's, there's not actually not very many equivalents to this um, in the rest of the Bible or the ancient world. But the key to the connection here is the phrasing of the command that comes with it. So you, you saw a bit later, um, what is it? In verse 17, God tells them, Thou shalt not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Exactly the same phrasing as the start of each of the Ten Commandments, which were held in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and represent living under the covenant commands of God. And there are lots of other things. And, and all of this is in the context of chapter 1, which we, we, we heard about two weeks ago, where God takes seven days to create a cosmos, at the center of which he places an image of himself, and the climax of which is the Sabbath. This is all temple language. The picture of Genesis 1 and 2 is primarily of God creating for himself a place of his presence and bringing humankind into that place to dwell with him. That is amazing when you begin to realize that that is in the first few pages of the scriptures. Now, there's so much that we could get out of this for the rest of the talk. We could do 10 sermons on each of those different things, but I'm going to pick out just two points that are really central that we can take away today from this picture. Here's the first one. God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. In this picture of God creating all things, as much as he made the fish for the water and he made the birds uh, for, the, for, for the air, he made human beings to inhabit his presence. That is our home. That is where we were made for. And, you know, coming back to where we started, Adam didn't need to write a bunch of letters to God pleading to be allowed into his presence. Adam didn't need to go on some great odyssey to prove uh, or earn his way before God, like so many of the stories in the ancient world did. He didn't have to, to earn his place there. God made him and brought him into his presence from the beginning. Let's make that personal. Before 
God wants anything from you. He, he just wants you. God, the God of the universe, desires your company. On your darkest days, you need to remember, that's on like page two of the Bible, God made you because he desires your company. St. Augustine in the fifth century famously put it, put it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Here's the picture. You have made us for yourself. You aren't really being you unless you're being you with God. You aren't really being you unless you're being you with God. And of course, we know, we know from our own experience that we don't, uh, we aren't born, we don't grow up enjoying this intimacy with God that's pictured here uh, for Adam in the garden. We know that our relationship with God is, is broken. Some of us may be here for the first time here tonight hearing that God even cares about us. The story of chapter two is this place that God made us for in his presence. And the story of chapter three, which we'll come to in two weeks time, is of how we walked out on that relationship, is of how we turned our backs on God and were sent out from his presence. But still, but still, it's so important to realize that this is not how the story starts, that the story starts with God making us for himself. And Jesus came, above all, to reconcile us to God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it says at his, his birth. You know, Jesus is God come in the flesh so that he can be with us. And as extraordinary as it, as it, it is, he died on a cross to enable us to enjoy God's presence again. Some of us will remember that little line that it says just after Jesus dies. It says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that the way into God's presence was open again. Yes, the rupturing of the relationship with God is serious and it can't just be swept under the carpet. But the important thing is to know that God doesn't need any convincing to welcome you home. The, um, the story that Jesus himself tells, the prodigal, story of the prodigal son, he tells to illustrate the heart of the father for those who are far from him. And it's a picture of a father who is scanning the horizon, longing for his child to return, and then running out to meet them and wrapping his arms around him, and then of welcoming him with a party. And what he says to him is, welcome home. Welcome home. You know, what's interesting about that, that welcome home, is if, for many of us, it's an interesting thing. Like, how can I be welcomed home if I was never there in the first place? Some of us didn't grow up knowing that God loved us or, 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 or haven't been, feel like we've never been home. How can, how can I be welcomed home? Well, the wonderful, wonderful message of Genesis chapter 2 is that in a very profound way, God's presence is our home. That that is what he made you for and made me for. Because he wants to be with us. 
So just a couple of thoughts here before I move on. One, did you know that you can enjoy the presence of God? Did you know that he longs to restore that relationship with you? If you didn't know that, I would love to tell you how you could leave this place today in a a new relationship with Jesus. That it's possible to return home even today. Don't, Don't pass up on that if that's what's on your heart. And then for those of us who would say we are Christians, I guess my just prod here is, okay, if God went to all of this, he made us for his presence, he died to return us to his presence, are you enjoying God's presence? What a privilege, what an extraordinary thing, and yet so often we rush around and we return to those two views of what God might be like. He's distant or he's completely, you know, unpleasable. He's a taskmaster, and we forget. He just sometimes wants us to be with him. Are you enjoying God's presence? God wants to be with us. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to pull out of this passage, though, is is, is something else. God wants to be with us, but also God wants us to help welcome others in. God wants us to help welcome others in. So, as we've seen in this passage, Adam is brought into God's presence uh, to enjoy God's presence. But I did miss one important thing. Maybe you noticed that I didn't make any mention of it. In verse 15, we see that Adam is also given a job. He is told to work and to care for the garden. Now, that makes sense in the context of a garden. But yet again, this is a clever temple connection. Did you know that these words, um, work and care for, as they're translated here, in, in, are found in Numbers and in a number of other books in, uh, being used as exactly the words that God commissions the priests to do their job in the temple. In Numbers, God commissions the priests to serve and guard in his tabernacle, and it's the same words. In other words, humanity are not just here to enjoy God's presence. They are here made to be priests of all creation. That is an amazing image. That is an amazing image. And the thing about priests is, is that they're not just, you know, priests don't just enjoy the privilege of God's presence for themselves, kind of hiding away. Priests exist, at least in part, for others. Priests are go-betweens. Priests are mediators. They exist to gather the praises of God's people up to him and also to make God's presence available to the people of God. You and I are made to enjoy God's presence, but we were also made to welcome other people into it. Now, I don't know what your, 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 what your kind of feel are about, you know, being a priest. Maybe that doesn't really vibe for you. You know, maybe you think, you know, that's a bit stuffy. I just want to suggest to you that the, the image here is, it's, the vibe is a lot less like museum curator. You know, kind of like, yes, please, come in, come in. Orderly queue, please, if you can walk around. Please don't touch anything. If you could just go around, yes, okay. We're going we're gonna to shut soon, please, can you go? That was my experience at Wimpole Hall on the weekend. 
It's much less, you know, museum curator, and it's much more, I think, party host. Party host, welcoming people in, helping people to enjoy. And I, I, I see, the more I've thought about it, the more that, that, uh, that image of being a party host has really uh, connected with me. Because being a party host, it involves both the practical and the personal, doesn't it? You know, if you're going you're gonna to throw a party, uh, have people around, there's loads of practical things to be done. You've got to make the homemade guac so that people don't judge you for buying store-bought stuff. And you've got to send out the invitation, and you've got to gather some chairs from the other room. You've got to make space, don't you? But then ultimately, it's about people, isn't it? It's about welcoming people in, about making people feel at home, and about connections, connecting people, and most of all, connecting them to the one whose party it is. We are being called to help welcome other people in. I'm going to get a tiny bit controversial here. Why, why don't Ollie and I wear big fancy priest's robes on a Sunday? Well, there might be several reasons. And just a caveat here, I think there is a place for them. If you see me at the cathedral, um, I'll be wearing them. Or if I might go visiting in the hospital, I might wear them. But why, why not on a Sunday here? Why do we do that? Well, I am a priest, and I do have a particular role amongst us as, um, as a church. But one of the reasons why we don't make a huge thing about it is because of this chapter and the truth that it holds. It's because if you're a Christian and you've got the Spirit of God in you, then you're a priest. So, you know, Kat's a priest. Well, she is actually also ordained. That was a bad example. Um, You know, but you're a priest, and you're a priest, and you're a priest, and you're a priest, and you guys are priests. That is so empowering to realize that God has made you to, to help welcome other people in. You know, the idea is not just kind of we come to church and kind of a few people up the front kind of we do the, you know, we do it and everyone else just enjoys as an audience. We collectively as God's people have been made to, to all together bringing the different gifts that we do, welcome people into the presence of God. And if you don't believe me, you think, Stuart, he's really gone off the deep end. He's got way too much out of this passage Why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter, writing about the whole church, says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. I find that fascinating. Chapter 1, we're made as royal regents. Chapter 2 here, we are priesthood. We are chosen people, a royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says it even more clearly. Jesus loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God. If you know Jesus, if you're full of his spirit, you are a priest, made to enjoy the presence of God, but also made to welcome others in. And this image is just boundless. I mean, some of us are following this series in our home groups, and you could talk loads about what this means. We could talk about the value of worship, how the picture here in Genesis is of of a temple and priests, and something central about that is worship, isn't it? We could talk about the importance of holiness to our roles as priests as well. But the thing I think which I just want to touch on as we we come to a close is, is how it also challenges our consumerism 
as Christians. Our, our, our sort of spiritual consumerism. Um, what, I don't know whether you've thrown a party recently. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never been to a party. I apologize if this doesn't connect with you, this image. But if you have, who has more, who is more relaxed at a party? Is it the guests or is it the host? Let me suggest to you it's the guests. You know, if I go to a party, it's like, I don't really care what happens. I'm just enjoying myself. I mean, the curtains could catch on fire. You know, things could be going, I don't really, it's not my house. I don't care. I'm enjoying myself. It's wonderfully freeing, isn't it, to just be a guest at a party. If you're the guest, if you're the host, you're rushing around. I remember, um, you know, a number of years ago when Jana, uh, Jana my wife, and, and I got engaged, we were planning a wedding, we, we heard this crazy statistic that the average Brit spends £30,000 on their wedding. And so we thought, we're going to try and do it in five. Well, we soon discovered why people spend so much money on their weddings. It's usually to get somebody else to organize it for them. Because, oh my word, it is so much work. And it's, I, don't th- I don't think it's really fair. It's like people get engaged and it's like, okay, to start your relationship, we're going to give you the most stressful task of your entire life. Organize a party for how many hundred people. It's very stressful. And you have to go, we have to go get the food. We had to, you know, then food wasn't allowed in the venue, so we had to get a Nana Mexico van. And it's just endless. It's so stressful. Here's something I think is quite profound. I think as we mature as Christians, as, as we become mature Christians, we need to learn to both be guests in God's presence and also to be hosts of God's presence. We must always, always be able to be guests in God's presence. To just come without working, without bringing anything, and just enjoy the fact that he made us to be with him. If we've lost that, we need to return to it. But we also learn there's a maturity to, to, to also being a host and to, to welcoming and to helping others into this amazing and life-changing relationship. So what does that look like? Well, so many examples I could have given, but I'm going to actually um, get really practical and use this as an opportunity to talk about our upcoming fourth service. Um, we have been talking about, and we're pretty serious, and we're hoping to launch a fourth service in January uh, in, the, in the afternoon. And every time I've spoken to people about this, I'll tell you what they've said. Why are you doing that? <laughs> that sounds like so much work. <laughs> um, and uh, it will be a huge amount of work. It will massively stretch us. Uh, because we are trying to put on um, kids' work at that service, we're going to need a whole new kids' team. Um, and uh, wow, some of you guys could be in that team. You could come to that service and serve on that team, and then you could come to this service to be a guest. There's an idea. Um, um, we're going to need a welcome team. We're going to need coffee. We're going to need, oh my word, we've, the worship team. I'm so sorry. It's, uh, I'm sorry. But we're going to need more worship team, definitely. Well, you know, why are we doing this? Well, we're not doing this um, for any other reason than to make space for more people to enjoy the presence of God. Our 9.30 service, as we heard, is absolutely round. We, we don't have enough space for kids. 
And we also hope that a service in the afternoon will be a better time for some families who, who maybe kids have sport in the morning or it just doesn't work in the morning. And if we were, if we were just acting like guests, we might say, okay, well, you know what? I've got my seat. I'm happy. I'm enjoying it. But God has also caused us, called us to be hosts and to make space for others to join But of course, it's not just about church, is it? This idea of being a priest is so much further afield. And it's just an amazing thing to realize that if we have God's Holy Spirit in us, that we take it wherever we go. That whether it's at the school gate, or whether it's at work, whether it's on holiday, whether it's chatting to someone in the bank queue, God is with us. He desires to be with us. But he has also made us to be priests. To, to be hosts and welcome people into that. He made us to be with him, and he made us to welcome others in too. What an extraordinary privilege. I'm going to finish there, and we're going to, as we usually do, spend the rest of our service just responding and meeting with God in this time. So um, how we're going to do this is, in a moment, I'm going to invite us to stand And I'm just going to pray for God's Holy Spirit, his presence, to come and rest on us and meet with us. And um, can I invite the band up? While we do that, we're just going to sing a song. And don't feel any pressure to stand or sit or do anything. You might just actually want to sit in the presence of God and enjoy being loved. (laughs) Maybe you haven't done that for a very long time. Or just if you don't know the don't know the Lord, just invite him to come and meet with you. But we're going to sing a song, and um, uh, uh, we're going to sing a couple of songs, actually, aren't we? Um, And um, we just want to make space. And as usual, we'd love to invite, if you feel God's at work in you, or you just would like to meet with the Lord, or you'd like someone to pray for you, why don't you just come up to the front during the songs, and there'll be a group of people who just stick a hand on your shoulder and pray for God to meet with you. You don't have to say anything to them. They'll just pray for God to meet with you. And we'd love to just spend some time in the presence of God and enjoy, enjoy his presence and ask him to be at work. So, you up for that? Can I invite us all to stand? Wonderful, wonderful thing is that by his Holy Spirit, the Lord is present here and wants to meet with us. So let's just open our hearts to him and I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you are so not like the many things we fear you are. That you love us, that you long to be with us. And we welcome you here, Holy Spirit, now. Just even where we are right now, I pray that you'd come and rest on each of us all across this room. You'd be reminding us of your unearned love. Of your safe, safe presence.
if you'd like to meet with God. Sometimes it's helpful just to have a posture with your body that says to God, I'd like to meet with you. Maybe some people find it helpful to put their hands out in front of them. It's not magic. It's a way of saying to the Lord, I would like to meet with you if you would like to meet with me. Lord, we invite you to come and meet with us. Just going to wait here for a few minutes and then we're going to sing a song and pray for each other. But maybe have a sense that someone's even maybe just prayed the prayer Lord why do I not feel at home in your presence maybe someone here or a couple of us here who just feel like why do I not feel at home in your presence Lord and and he just wants you to know that he feels at home in your presence and he does want to meet with you and you don't need to hide anything to come and meet with him (laughs) 